you know, maybe maybe it'll be a couple hundred years from now, someone may come back and, and say, ah, you know, this effect, if I reinterpret your data, ah, we could see that, that ah, you know, a warp drive was totally possible and you just weren't looking at it the right way. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, we have part two of the interview with Tom Perry, who is a particle physicist at CERN. So where we left off, well, first of all, if you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that so you have some more context for this, um, which is kind of the more uh, fun, uh, philosophical, explorative episode of the two a lot more like hypothetical theoretical science talk versus kind of the more hard science that is in part one um that being said the very beginning of this episode is where we left off on part one which is definitely hard science which is how the large hadron collider works how do we speed up these particles to nearly the speed of light um because i think a lot of us probably knew that they are doing that at CERN, that they are speeding up these particles to nearly the speed of light. But how the hell are we actually doing this? And then how do you manage to go faster and faster and faster? Like, how is it that CERN can speed these particles up faster today than they did 15, 20 years ago? Um, what advancements are being made that allows that to happen? So that's where we will begin. And then we go into awesome, interesting, sci-fi, weird talk. So I hope you all enjoy that. Without further ado, here is part two of CERN Particle Physicist. How do we accelerate these particles? Like they don't have a, like little uh, jetpacks sitting on the particles or anything. Like how how are they being sped up? What does the LHC actually do to give these things velocity? Yeah, we got jetpacks. <laughs> <laughs> Just little microscopic jetpacks. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, so it starts off with uh, with a basically a can of hydrogen gas, a bottle of hydrogen gas. Uh, and so hydrogen is one proton, one electron. And so if you stick that in an in a, uh, electric field, you can rip that electron off, and now you just have a proton. And so these protons, these are, these are the beam. This is what will we'll end up uh, accelerating and colliding. And so uh, you, it's, you, you, can't just, you can't just take... Um, you know, your, your hydrogen gas that's kind of moving around in random directions uh, and just accelerate it all the way up to uh, this super, super relativistic uh, energies that, that, we, that we get to. Uh, you have to go through kind of a bunch of smaller steps where you, you'll accelerate uh, some of them and then you'll get them uh, into a nice stable configuration uh, and then you'll go to the next step. So... So CERN is actually like uh, they just had their 60-year uh, anniversary, and basically what they do is every time they build a, a new accelerator, they just take the old biggest accelerator and have that become the pre-accelerator for the new accelerator. So so you just have like a bunch of uh, rings that just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you eventually have your protons that are circulating in this uh, in this full. 26 kilometer circumference uh, 
uh, beam. Okay, so two, so two questions really quick. So one, I, I still don't understand exactly how they accelerate to begin with, but then also now that I know about that sort of concentric circle thing, how are they, once they start being sped up in one of these smaller ones and then they get moved to a bigger one, how do they get moved to a bigger one without losing their velocity? How are they being transferred while they're already moving? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good follow-up. So the, the thing about this, this proton beam is that it's not actually a beam. It's not just a continuous line of protons that we're accelerating around in a circle. Uh, what we do is we'll accelerate bunches of protons. And so we'll have uh, a group of protons that are all together, and then there will be a space. And then there will be another group of protons that are all together. And then there will be another space. And it's, it's a distribution that's kind of like this uh, around the, the tubes that, that make up our... Uh, our accelerator, and so if you if you think of if you think of this kind of like a kind of like a gear almost, you know those would be the teeth of the gear. If you can put something uh, in those spaces, that when you turn it, it'll it'll start turning those uh, those proton bunches. That's kind of what we do with uh, electric and magnetic fields. So we have a bunch of uh, magnets, and these are. Uh, the way we make these magnets are is using superconductors, so that you know makes things a little more complicated because you need to cool them down to uh, like a couple degrees above absolute zero, uh, for example, and and by turning on and off these electric and magnetic fields in just the right times, you can take your particles and you can accelerate them, and uh, you can take these bunches of particles and you can try and squeeze them into a more compact little bunch. And then uh, using the fact that it's, it's not continuous, but you have you know, bunch, space, bunch, you can use these spaces to, uh, to say, okay, I'm gonna quickly switch from this ring to the next. And that gives you some time to change your magnetic field from you know, this value to that value. And now when the particles come through this section, they're gonna get kicked off to the next ring of the accelerator. So basically, you just have these areas of the accelerator uh, that are like like train tracks, where it's supposed to be it, like it could just be going straight here, but then it's like you push a button and like train tracks it instead of going straight, like veers slightly to the right, and it makes its way into the next ring. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then the the magnets piece. So I would imagine if these magnets are turning off and on to to keep you know these the the particles moving, uh, is this just at like millions of a second or something that these magnets are firing on and off yep <laughs> that's why that's why we need to use uh superconductors because uh we need to have extremely precise and uh rapid control over over these electric fields and magnetic fields that uh that that will make in these magnets and so um and so that, that's another uh, one of these technologies that uh, CERN has really been innovating in that uh, has applications outside the world of, of particle physics. Is the superconductor piece you're saying? Yeah, superconductor. Yeah, superconductor technology. Uh, this, is, this is another thing that a lot of people tend to be interested in. And I'm so, not super knowledgeable about about it, but I know that it's a big topic. Yeah, and so superconductor is that just basically what it sounds like, like something that conducts electricity and and I maybe perhaps magnetism like incredibly well. And superconductors are uh, 
they're they're almost kind of magic. They're they're uh, what they do is is they take they take advantage of a really interesting uh, quantum mechanical effect. Um, so normally in in a conductor, you know, you've got like a metal. So you've got all of your your the nuclei the nuclei of your atoms are are nice and stable, and your electrons can just kind of move around. And so that's what current is through a through a wire is just electrons moving around. And so in in a superconductor, uh, oftentimes you get this by by really lowering the temperature of some uh, some specific uh, kinds of materials. But if you if you make a superconductor, what you end up getting are uh, instead of these electrons moving around individually, they they turn into this uh, kind of quantum mechanical pair. Uh, they call it a Cooper pair. And in when they're in this kind of Cooper pair state, uh, they they don't notice any resistance from the uh, from all of these protons that uh, that make up the the wire. And so uh, the a superconductor the the way that we you know the way you know you have a superconductor is because there's zero resistance in your in your uh, conductor. So there becomes no friction whatsoever for these electrons. Yeah, you can think of it like uh, like friction. And so then this is how you're able to speed these up to basically, it's just below the speed of light that you're getting these particles, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's so even, even kind of, uh, even talking about speed in terms of like the fraction of the speed of light, like that even kind of stops becoming relevant when you're, when you're talking about these kinds of numbers. Uh, the, the, I think the the decimal point is it's ninety nine, and then it's I think it's seven nines, and and then a seven is the uh, that percent of the speed of light is how fast we're getting these protons going. So like, what's the difference between like ninety nine point nine nine and nine 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 nine? You know, the the absolute difference in speed is nothing. Uh, so the the important thing is is the amount of energy that you can get from these uh, from these beams. And so that's the way that we that we characterize them. Uh, so if we if we go back to, to Einstein's E equals M C squared, right? Energy equals mass. So if you have really high energy collisions, then you can create particles that have more and more mass. And so if we're looking for new particles, uh, the kind of the most obvious place to look for new particles is to look for things that are heavier than we've ever looked for before. And so. Uh, and so at the Large Hadron Collider right now, we're at uh, 13 tera electron volts. That's the unit that we use. And for comparison, the, the previous biggest collider was uh, in the U.S. It was outside of Chicago. Uh, it's called the Tevatron. And it got up to like two and a half TeV. So it's, it's almost an order of magnitude. Uh, factor wow. of five. So what allows those numbers to increase? Is it just the size of the collider allows that number to go up? Size of the collider is a, definitely a big thing. Um, you know, the, these uh, magnets are, are, these are super, these, the magnets that, that we're using to, to steer and control these beams, this is, uh, this is really new technology that was invented for this application at CERN. So, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it, it takes a lot. <laughs> it takes a lot to, to, keep upping these these kinds of things uh, so now that you're like you mentioned the one at uh in chicago being so much less than than you guys 
but you guys said you said that you guys are at about like ninety nine point nine 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 seven or whatever the speed of light was. Chicago far off from that, or and like how, if you guys are already at ninety nine point nine 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 seven the speed of light, uh, how would you ever get it to go to to like increase the amount of energy that could be made? Like if if the the speed basically equals the uh, or is that is that a right way to think about it that the speed is equaling the energy uh, or is there some other sort of factor here? Uh, so the first thing I'll say is that uh, this the Tevatron at Fermilab in in Chicago uh, this was they they ran maybe a decade ago or so was was kind of their real heyday. So uh, you know technology advances they were they broke a, a ton of uh, records they they discovered new particles. Uh, themselves uh, when they were when they were really running, um, so this is yeah kind of the the inevitable progression uh, of science and the way that you yeah the way that you you up these these energies is through things like you know having just bigger longer tunnels having more powerful magnets uh, and things like that so I think that at the at the Tevatron they were running at maybe ninety nine point like nine 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 the speed of light. Uh, and so, and so your question about if, if speed is really the, the right way to, to think of it, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's not really. Uh, so I was, I was saying that, you know, you, should, you can think of it in terms of, of energy, because uh, energy is, is really the important thing. Um, and so if you, you know, I, we, were, we were saying if, if, you, if you think of energy as coming out of the collision and creating mass, Okay, that's that's a uh, that's one way that energy enters into this whole uh, into our whole understanding of a particle collision. Uh, but energy, this energy mass relationship, uh, it also kind of enters into the picture even before you have your particle collision. So uh, so as your particle keeps speeding up, um, this was Einstein's uh, special relativity. He said that. You know, he, he gave us a mechanism for the speed limit of the speed of light. You know, he, you know, he said that if you keep adding more and more force, you keep pushing on some, some object, it's not just going to keep going faster and faster. You know, it, it reaches this, this maximum. Uh, but the way that it, that it reaches it is, uh, is by saying that the, the particle keeps getting heavier and heavier. And so, so as you add more energy to this particle... Uh, you can, on the one hand, interpret this as, yes, it's going faster, uh, but at the same time, it also ever so slightly gets a little bit heavier. And so, uh, and so then when we have the, these particle collisions, you can think of it like these, uh, these kind of light particles that are going really fast, uh, or you can just kind of think of it as, here's the amount of energy that we have available in this collision and uh, and that simplifies uh, that simplifies things a lot, right? But so uh, is the the entire. So you said that the Chicago one could go up to what was the energy measurement that you gave? It was like two something. Uh, yeah, it was like two and a half. I think it was maybe two point six five TeV. Okay, uh, and you guys are around thirteen at CERN right yeah. now. So, and so is the only difference between that two and a half and the thirteen that 
you, that they could only that they could get ninety nine point nine nine nine. Like they went out like three decimal places, and you're going out six decimal places or seven decimal places. Is that the difference between the number two and the number thirteen energy output, or is there something else influencing that? Nope, that's exactly it. Wow, crazy. So, in the thing that allows you to go those four extra decimal places, is that solely uh, the the uh, equipment that you guys have now so like better superconductors and then the size of the like when you increase the size of the ring does that allow you to speed things up more yeah it does uh and and that's really it it's just the size and the uh and you know some a little bit better magnet technology uh i assume the, that one of you guys uh, since that this is like what you do is is lots of math and analysis and things like that that, you, that it's been able to be figured out um, so you guys are at 13 right now. What would happen if you basically went, uh, you know, the speed of light, like, and you smash two things together, what energy level would that be? Like, it would be go from 13 to what? So that's the, that's the, that's like kind of the, the beauty of, of Einstein's uh, speed limit is that it's not the kind of speed limit that you can ever actually get to, uh, we have this concept called an asymptote, where it's kind of this infinitesimal approach. You can always keep getting closer. Like, you can always keep having your distance, right? This was uh, the Zeno paradox. But yeah, basically, like you're saying, if if you always go halfway closer to something, you're never going to reach it. Right, yeah, yeah. So you'll never, exactly. So so you'll always keep going faster, uh, but... If your mass is also increasing, then the amount of energy that it takes you to make to to take that next half of a step uh, is is going to be even greater. And then, okay, you you're there. Now you need to take another quarter of a step. Well, the energy that it takes to get you there is even greater. And the reason for this is because as you're going faster and faster, your mass is increasing. And so, at a certain point, there. It- there is no amount of energy that could push your amount of mass because it just doesn't no, work anymore. No, that's the thing. It can, always, it can always keep getting bigger, right? Like, I, I, can, I can get 99.9 you know, times the speed of light, or I can get 99.99999, or you know, 99999999. You, know, there's, you can always keep adding nines. But, but, you, can never, but you can never hit it. But you can never, right? You, you can, it would be, it, this is, this is uh, you know, this is, the the physics concept of of infinity this is you know when when physicists talk about uh about problems that that uh physics is facing we'll talk you know if you talk about you know what happens inside the middle of a black hole we'll start saying ah things go to infinity well this is what you're this line of thinking that you're that you're trying to get to is is the same kind of an idea you know you can you can keep going faster and faster but it would take you an infinite amount of force to get something that has mass to go the speed of light. That so is such that is awesome. such a crazy crazy concept. It's so weird. Like another thing that now that I understand more about that from what you're saying, it the the whole entire mass piece that your mass is actually going up uh, and that's why eventually you can't go any faster is it like well, I guess so. Light doesn't have any mass, right? Is that that? So it's not like light is massive in any way. That's yeah. That's that's the thing about light. That's why it's able to go 
at the speed of light. And it can't go any slower because it's this massless particle. And so the only way for it to still have energy, right? If, if you were to somehow stop it, then, well, it doesn't have mass, so it doesn't have any energy from that. And it's, it's not moving, so it doesn't have any energy from that. So if it doesn't have any energy, it, you can't really say it's there, you know? Right. Uh, but, but if you have this, a photon that's moving, it, it, we, we, can, we can see it as a particle, and we can see it as something that has energy. Uh, and it, it kind of, it, it really feels like it's this kind of technical, mathematical loophole that, ah, you know what? Things can, in fact, go the speed of light, but only if they don't have a mass, right? That seems like kind of a crazy idea. Like, how can you have a particle without a mass? But, you know, we, we see them. Yeah, right. So something even as tiny as, as one single proton, if, if you're to get that up to, like, you know, as close as you could possibly get to the speed of light without being the speed of light, how much does it weigh at that point? Like, is it basically well, weighing like mean, a bazillion the pounds? The thing is, like, wh- what, can, what, can you, what can you mean by as close as possible to, to the speed of light? Right, like any any number that you tell me that's as close as you want to the speed of light, I can tell you a number that is closer to the speed of light. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, but so it's it, like if we're if we're considering mass as as weight, that like it, at a certain point, does does the proton actually start to become heavy? Like, it, could it, could a proton weigh like a thousand pounds if it were going fast enough? Yeah, it could. Uh, so as it is, I think uh, when our protons are colliding, I think they weigh something like the mass of a gold atom, like a gold nucleus. What, so in what order of magnitude bigger than their starting mass is that? Uh, so that, so protons are, uh, it's, it's actually really kind of convenient for, for particle physicists. In, the, in these units that we use, protons uh, have a mass of about one. So one TEV, or, or sorry, one GeV, uh, and so uh, this is giga, um, and the collider is happening at thirteen TeV. So that's tera. So the difference between giga and tera is is a thousand. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty big factor. In in but what, so, so what thirteen thousand thirteen thousand would would be that factor? Is how much uh, heavier it's getting. By the time it collides. Yeah, actually, I guess I guess I should divide that by two because we have two beams. So they're each of the beams is actually six and a half, six and a half. Uh, so they collide to make thirteen. So I guess each each proton would would be about uh, you know six thousand five hundred times heavier than uh, than it would be at, when it's at rest. That is incredible. If uh, now I'm thinking about like the theory of relativity and things like that. If you were in a spaceship, sorry, now I'm just like throwing out all these weird questions to you. Uh, if you were in a spaceship that was going as fast as that particle accelerator is going, um, would would you basically get like smushed to death? Like, would you would you feel the heaviness or or no? Because the spaceship is going that fast, and you just happen to be sitting inside of it, or would all of a sudden your body become so massive that it's like you just you couldn't even take it anymore? So the thing about the thing about uh, our our particle accelerator is that 
it's not just it's not just that these particles are going really fast. Uh, they're also going in a circle. Um, so, so if I were on a spaceship that were somehow to be going at uh, you know 99.999 whatever the speed of light, uh, saying that I have that speed only makes sense if I can tell you relative to something else. This is why it's called this, you know, Einstein's special theory of relativity, is that everything really matters in relation to something else. So it's not just the fact that you're going so fast that, uh, that you'll, you'll, so I, if I'm on this spaceship and I'm going this fast, I won't feel any different. Uh, but if I am on this spaceship and I'm on Earth and then I accelerate from zero up to that speed, that that process, that's probably what's going to crush me. Interesting. So, it, it, okay. So, take out the Earth piece. So, you said if you're on Earth and you accelerate up to that speed, it would crush you. If you're in in the vacuum of space and you accelerate yeah. up to that speed it, during the acceleration process, would you be crushed or no? Because you're in the vacuum of space. So what? Uh, so Einstein's answer to this is uh, general relativity. And, and the, the key insight that he had was that uh, for you, your sensation, uh, the sensation that you have of gravity when you're standing on Earth is no different than if you were on a spaceship in totally the vacuum of space and it was accelerating at, you know, in this case, 9.8 meters per second squared. That's what it is on Earth. And so... Uh, it depends. It depends on the rate of the acceleration. If you're going to get crushed or not. If you go, you know, if you go from zero to ninety nine percent the speed of light in uh, in a minute, then yeah, a person's going to get squished. <laughs> uh, if you if it takes you, you know, a billion years, then uh, you know you you can have a small acceleration, and all that you'll ever feel is uh, it's just kind of like your ship has a little bit of gravity. Interesting. So you're ta- now you're basically talking about like G's, like G force, like like a like a fight like a fighter pilot would experience or something is all of a sudden you're going like two g's or three g's and you have trouble breathing and everything because of the you know now you have uh like two or three times the force of gravity pressing upon your body um because of the acceleration that you're doing so that's that's really interesting though you talk about like that that sort of relativity so if you accelerated so slowly you wouldn't really notice it that being said if you were to at the end of those billions of years of acceleration and you're now at 99.999 the speed of light you could if if somehow you were to be weighed you could weigh like a million pounds and you would have no idea like you it would be the same to you as when you started your journey yeah again it depends on uh, on who's doing the weighing like if if i'm if i'm weighing myself on my spaceship then I'll say no. I'll say that I weigh, you know, just the same as I did, or you know, maybe I went on a diet or something. But <laughs> yeah. but, but but if you somehow uh, sitting on on you know the reason I say Earth, I'm just giving you some stationary reference point. Right. If if I started a ways away and I come zipping by Earth just as I'm reaching you know 99 point whatever the speed of light, and you somehow weighed me, or you somehow figured out a way where you could look at my trajectory and determine my mass yeah then you would say wow this guy is uh is really heavy (laughs) 
Man, it's uh, it's all so interesting. Sorry, these are really weird questions. It's just such interesting stuff to think about. Plus, I'm reading a sci-fi book series right now, and they keep on talking about flying at different Gs and stuff like that. So it just has me thinking a lot about space travel. Um, I think space travel, yeah, I think this kind of stuff is good to think about. Yeah, so, all right. So on that note, is the only way that we will ever be able to travel in space, basically, if we find like wormholes and things like that, like some way to actually like change space time. Like there's no way at, as it stands right now that we could go fast enough to really be going anywhere in space. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's tough. I don't, yeah, I don't really see a ton of, uh, options really kind of, kind of right ahead of us. Uh, even, even wormholes are like kind of, uh, I don't know how how realistic it would it is for us to like imagine ourselves uh, controlling wormholes. So the idea do you know do you know the idea behind a, a wormhole? How that there there is kind of a theory at least for how you could make a wormhole uh, that could that could travel through time. Uh, so if you if you take a you take a a, a pair of particles and they're uh, and they're, they're quantum mechanically uh, connected to each other. So kind of like these electrons inside a superconductor. As you separate these, these two particles, they still kind of maintain some degree of connection between each other. And, and this, you know, you can, you can separate them as far as you part, uh, as far as part as you want. If I measure uh, some aspect of, of this one electron on one side, the other one, all the way on the other side, is still going to end up correlated. Uh, and so this was this was actually this effect in quantum mechanics that Einstein really didn't like because it seemed to say that you could send information faster than the speed of light because it was instantaneous. As soon as you measure the one, the other one is is correlated. Right. So if you imagine just keep making pairs of these particles and keep separating them, and the one side is all correlated and the other side is all correlated, and you get enough that you turn this into, into a black hole on the one side and a black hole on the other side, well, then maybe you, you might have uh, some sort of a, an entangled, you know, that might be a way to make a wormhole. Right. <laughs> it's kind of out there. Or like you, you talking about that also makes me think of like Star Trek style, like beam me up Scotty stuff. It's like, okay, well, we took all of your atoms and we just like perfectly mirrored them right here and you appeared again. But then are, are you even still yourself? Like this new version of you that just appeared right here? Like, yeah, it's all these mirrored atoms, but is it you still? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, for better or worse, uh, we're definitely nowhere near be- being able to do that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, for uh, sure. You know, like, I mean, we got 3D printers, you know, we can kind of make Legos. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, these kinds of uh, philosophical questions of, if you reconstruct someone that has all the same atomic structure as me, is that, is that me? I mean, uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, outside the realm of physics, but, uh, but still, still relevant when you're, when you want to consider like, uh, where, where is technology leading? So to what extent do we believe, again, this is just like total sci-fi realm, just because I'm reading sci-fi right now. To what extent do we believe that these laws that we create in physics are 
all that there is in the universe. And these discoveries that we make are all that there is. Because in a lot of sort of like sci-fi novels and stuff like that, the way that we will make some huge leap in technology is because it's more or less like contact with another like alien race, right? Like they they worked on things in their own way. They figured out how to beat the speed of light or do something. Then they show us that technology and it's like, oh crap, right? Like we just were, we were thinking about it wrong. We didn't, we couldn't get our heads around that because we didn't think about it the right way. Is that basic is that possible or as the way that we think about things now it doesn't even leave the possibility of that like our rules of physics should be the governing rules of physics for the entire universe uh well our our rules of physics should be (laughs) but they might not be uh they so so you know when isaac newton was was doing his physics he had this uh this kind of view of the universe that everything was very mechanical and, you know, everything was like action, reaction. You have these forces, you can account for everything. And uh, it was this, this clockwork universe is, is the way they described it. Uh, and so then quantum mechanics says, uh, quantum mechanics comes in and it, it just says that this whole picture is, is totally wrong, right? It's totally broken. Uh, but, but that's not exactly how, how quantum mechanics uh, upset the world of physics. It didn't, it never actually said that Newton's laws are, are wrong. What it, what it said is that Newton's laws only really apply to this specific situation. They only apply to the situation where you're traveling a lot slower than the speed of light, or you weigh a whole lot less than a black hole. And so that's kind of the way that, that physics and, uh, and math, uh, and I think science is really, really progress is is they we're, we're it's it really doesn't happen that uh that we find um that, w- that we'll just say things are wrong uh that that what people were were doing before if you you know if if that's the thing if you're if you're doing an honest experiment and you're actually collecting the data and reporting it exactly how you you know giving all the information for how you collected it and the the assumptions that you made uh, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be a couple hundred years from now, someone may come back and, and say, ah, you know, this effect, if I reinterpret your data, ah, we could see that, that, ah, th- you know, a warp drive was totally possible and you just weren't looking at it the right way. Yeah. You're making me think now that, yeah, it leaves the uh, possibility open for that because the way that you talk about physics compared to like, you know, classical physics compared to like quantum mechanics and things like that is that what classical physics was doing was looking within a set of constraints and they didn't realize they were looking within a set of constraints, but they were right. And it's like, and then quantum mechanics came about and said, Oh, you're looking in within that set of constraints. If you go outside of that, then these things are possible. So then that leaves that possibility open again at some point in the future. Again, whether or not like we get that information from like an alien race or just some really smart person figures that out or a smart computer figures that out one day. It's like, Oh, you guys were thinking within this constraint set. If you expand your mind out further, here's what's actually possible. Yeah, and I think uh, this is, I mean, so one of the, you know, the, the big topic in, uh, you know, the deep topic in, uh, in physics today maybe is, uh, is what is space and time, right? Like, you know, Einstein told us that, that space isn't just this kind of passive background that everything just takes place in. 
But if you have things like the sun and, and the earth, you know, gravity is, is distorting this space time. And so how do you get space time? How, how does that come out? Why do we have these kinds of things? Uh, it's, it's possible that, uh, that really the, the right way to, to look at the universe, space and time aren't really, they're not even relevant. They're just kind of these emergent properties of some, uh, of some even deeper concept. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you want to talk about constraints. It's like that we're even thinking about things in the ways of space time. And if, if maybe there was some extra way uh, like or extra thing out there, then it would completely eliminate any restraints that space time puts on us. Yeah, there's this guy uh, Nima Arkani Hamed. He's a he's a theorist over at the uh, the Institute for Advanced Study, and he's you know he's working on these kinds of things. And uh, you know maybe it's maybe it's kind of out there. You know you want to say that that particle physics has no application, <laughs> like the stuff he's doing. Really, that has no application. <laughs> but it's. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's also kind of like, you know, these are the deepest questions. Yeah, no kidding, man. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how much physics can intersect with like philosophy and stuff. You know, of just like the deepest questions of like, who are we and like, what the hell are we doing and stuff. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was yeah, originally it was called uh, natural philosophy, right? It was the philosophy of of the natural world. You know, I guess we kind of ascribed a little more, uh, you know, some more human characteristics to, to the natural world back then. But this thought that, uh, you know, the universe is thinking and has some kind of strange plan and rules that it that it obeys. That's uh, it's a pretty old it's a pretty old concept. Yeah, for sure. All right. Let's uh, just to reel things back in a little bit. And we've already been discussing things for so long. So I guess at a certain point we have to end, although I have like infinitely more questions I could ask you. Let's. um. Let's go ahead and leave off on the future. I would love to know how tech, uh, like improved technology, is sort of impacting physics right now and what you guys are able to do. We talked about that a little bit already of just the superconductors and, and things like that. But how not just in the uh, like engineering side of things and like making a better L a Large Hadron Collider, but also in your analysis and stuff like that. Like how, how is improving technology impacting what you guys are capable of and then if you could project out a little bit, what does the future look like uh, in terms of technology that is just starting to come out or, or could possibly be coming out soon? So another, another big thing that we, uh, that we work on at CERN, uh, so the internet was invented at CERN, for example. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was used originally as a way for scientists to, they just, you know, scientists just wanted to share some data with each other. And yeah. it's this big international collaboration. So if I want to send my data set to some guys in India and they want to collaborate with someone in Russia and they want to collaborate with someone in Italy and Spain, like uh, you needed to have these kinds of uh, the, kind of the, the seeds for, for this large scale uh, data analysis were, were already kind of planted uh, even back, you know, couple, you know, 30 years ago, let's say. Uh, so, so some of the, the innovations that are happening now are still, uh, still based around this, uh, this, this idea that we're analyzing huge data sets. So uh, when it comes to data storage and, uh, and data sharing uh, across these uh, huge international networks, uh, CERN is really doing a lot of uh, 
innovating uh, in, in that kind of domain. Um, in terms, of, in terms of, of technologies that are coming out, I, you know, I, I don't know that I, can, I, that I really know of any specific technologies. Uh, you know, all this superconductor, semiconductor, the, the, the material science of, of actually building our detectors is, uh, is also, uh, you know, everything, everything is custom, right? Everything that we're trying to do is we're trying to detect new particles at higher energies in more uh, creative and uh, precise ways. So everything here is, is getting designed from scratch. And, uh, and that, that just gives you a million little, little ways of, of optimizing this procedure or that procedure or thinking about firmware or, or how, to, how to program your, your chips to better you know, extract the data. So, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, experience and expertise that that comes through CERN, and then uh, and then just the the kind of general uh, data analysis, computer science skills that that people that people develop here. I think those are kind of the uh, those are maybe the exports, if anything. Right, right. And now let's leave off on Tom the uh, like what is the the next like major experiment coming out of CERN out of the Large Hadron Collider. So the last one I would say would be like, and when I say major experiment, experiment, I mean so major that it it spills over into the mainstream that like people like me know about it and are following it and stuff, you know. So we, you were there for the discovery uh, or the observation of the Higgs boson. We won't go into what that is and everything in, in this episode. But um, what do you think the next? sort of major thing that people are trying to discover or observe or look at right now at the Large Hadron Collider is that uh, that is going to be really kind of groundbreaking? Well, uh, so the thing about the Higgs boson was that we really kind of expected it. Like, it was predicted in the, in the 70s or so, and, and since then, basically everyone has eventually gotten on board, and we all knew that it had to be there. Uh, so, so the Higgs boson was like this kind of not a sure bet, but it was a really good bet. Uh, moving forward, and, and the Higgs boson was kind of the last piece of of this uh, of this picture that we had. So, so moving forward, making making new discoveries, uh, the things that we're looking at are are dark matter is a, is a really huge topic. Uh, a lot, you know, we there's a ton of evidence for dark matter out there in the universe, um, but we've never directly observed you know what a dark matter particle looks like so uh so that's one thing that that we're that we're searching for uh supersymmetry is this other uh theory of 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 particles where basically all of the particles we know have another have another set there's another mirror uh group of particles uh that have maybe not the same properties but related properties like doppelgangers, so, like they're like they're the particles, but they're wearing like evil goatees. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, 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 though we're we're searching for dark matter, we're searching for for supersymmetry. Uh, you know, we're searching for all sorts of crazy things. You know, magnetic monopoles and microscopic uh, black holes. Uh, but but these things aren't. Uh, they're not that kind of uh, safe bet that we're definitely going to find them. Uh, it. It, it may, in fact, be the case that we need to to go to higher energy colliders to uh, to discover new particles. But it's also not just 
discovering new particles. That's that you know that's not the only interesting thing that we can do. Uh, this this Higgs boson that we discovered, this is a brand new particle. You know we've we've never observed it before. It has a lot of new properties. It's kind of a it's a unique particle. Uh, it's very different from all the other ones. So even just just really studying uh, everything that it has to tell us, maybe it's it, you know we actually don't know a hundred percent sure that it's not maybe like two particles. Uh, and so and so knowing knowing these kinds of things, that's kind of where we're headed. Now, sorry, I keep on saying last question, then it ends, <laughs> and then it, it gets extended a little bit. But uh, it, I was just thinking about the Higgs boson, and so we were trying to discover that or i should say we were trying to observe that for a very very long time and then it finally happened now now that we observed it the one time is it easier for us to uh find it again or is it like no it's basically just a matter of like we have to do this experiment one million times to be able to see it once so after we do it another million times we'll see it again or or observing it the first time gives us some clues into how to better recreate the exact scenario that allowed us to see it the first time. It becomes easier in a, in a, in a way because we have done an analysis and you're right. We know where we know where to look, but, uh, but when it comes to how often, uh, these particles are, are going to be produced, that's just going to be, uh, you know, a function of, of the underlying, quantum mechanics the underlying uh physics that's that's happening there so if you only make one higgs boson in a million then uh you know you're only going to make one higgs boson in a million and and what we try and do is we try and say okay well maybe we did an analysis and we found our one higgs boson in a million well maybe actually now that we found it looking in this one particular way maybe there's kind of a side way that we can look at this where we can realize, ah, you know, there are actually two every million. And so we're always trying to improve our, our analysis techniques, uh, but you can't, you can't get around the, the underlying physics. Mm, yeah, interesting. It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Like, it doesn't necessarily make it easier to find the next needle in the, the next haystack. Like, you're still just looking for a needle in a haystack. And maybe one day you'll have, like, a metal detector that can help you out or something, but not right now. You're still just looking for needles in haystacks. Yeah, but but like you say, maybe maybe part of me searching for that original needle was me realizing, hey, you know, if if I like pull the magnet out of my pocket and started looking with that, that's a good technique, and I can use that on my next pile. Right, and each pile maybe gets a little easier because you find some new techniques, but not like landslides easier, not like life changing. Yeah, it gets the it gets easier, but the pile doesn't get any smaller. <laughs> right, for sure. Good analogy. Um, all right, man, Tom, this has been awesome. You answered so many questions for me. Um, I still have so many more questions, but uh, yeah, I think we'll just like infinitely have questions about all these things, right? Like that's what happens in, in physics. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, maybe not even <laughs> that statement's true outside of just physics too. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome, Tom, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, it was a pleasure and uh, I, I had a great time talking with you. 
Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, Just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.